But at his insistence, it's about more than Senator Dole. And um, when we're done, we hope we'll have a mosaic that will really amount almost to a history of the modern Senate, and in a still larger sense, of the political process as it has evolved since Bob Dole came to his town in 1961, for better or worse, and that's a debatable point. Um, let me begin by uh, say something Senator Warner said in yesterday's post. It was interesting. I think he came to the Senate in 78. Mm-hmm. And what, what year did you? 68. I was elected in 68. came in 69. Okay. He talked about, it's interesting, he talked about, in effect, the good old days, as he remembered them, when freshmen were seen but not heard, when you waited till your second year to give your maiden speech, and when you had a handler to sort of guide you through the initiation. Does that ring a bell with you? Uh, somewhat true. Uh, I, I think John may have overemphasized it. But there was a, a maiden speech concept in which other senators came to hear your maiden speech. And so you worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And, and, and probably it was a terrible speech. But, but certainly your, your fellow senator from your state came. And, uh, but you'd always have at least uh, seven or eight that would show up. You know, you're giving it in the afternoon when there's no business of any kind. You're not really commenting on the hottest issue of the day that's going on. But what I do remember first day I got there, in the parking lot, I pulled, parked in the Senate courtyard, and pulling up next to me to park was Gene McCarthy. And he said, uh, morning, Senator. You know, and I thought, wow, he called me Senator. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm glad you're with us. You know he abandoned me. And it, didn't, it took me just a minute to understand. I beat Senator Wayne Morris. And Morris had promised to support McCarthy in 68 and had endorsed Bobby Kennedy. And McCarthy had not forgotten that. And he says, you know, he abandoned me. And, you know, I'm on the floor, and John Stennison, Senator Packwood, good to have you with us and whatnot. It took me about eight months before I realized, when they call you Senator, you'd earned it, you got there. But only when they call you by your first name have you arrived. Hmm. And it, uh, How long did that take? Oh, it took eight or nine months before the, the seniors. I mean, the younger ones called you by your first name, so your contemporaries. But... The Russell Longs, the John Stennis's, uh, yeah. the, uh, the Alan Ellenders of that era. Yeah. Uh, this is a, he seems to be a nice young man. We'll see how he does. And was it a much more hierarchical place? Oh yes, hierarchical in the sense first. It was still when I got there an era when Southerners controlled almost all the committees, and they were still Southern Democrats. Oh yes, when, when I say Southerners, I, John Tower had been elected in about sixty-one or two, and he was the first Republican from the South. In the longest period of time, I think we elected Ed Gurney from Florida in 68, but Florida was already trending away from what I'd call a, a southern state mm. in the normal sense. But when you looked at the uh, chairman appropriations, as I recall, was Alan Ellender, I think, and he died. And I can't remember the sequence, but Jim Eastland was judiciary. John Stennis was armed services. Bill Frobart was foreign relations. You can just go right down the list. Uh, <coughs> They were all senators, and as opposed to now, Russell Long was chairman of finance committee. You didn't have the leadership strength that you had. You didn't overrule. If you were a leader, you didn't overrule a committee chairman. You didn't take a bill out of committee. You didn't cross a committee chairman. 
and I sense gradually the power is shifting both in the House and the Senate to the leaders and the, and the leaders' coterie. Mm. And, uh, you know, a good example, Nancy Pelosi is trying to do an energy bill on an ad hoc committee to go around John Dingell. Well, that would not have happened. Uh, you, you, it may not happen this time. I'm not <laughs> sure. But, but no one would have thought of doing something like that. The uh, minimum wage bill that passed was basically taken away, the, the finance parts of it, and taken away from Max Baucus because Harry Reid and Max don't get along. And, but, so that, that has been a change. And it's interesting, you, you mentioned Senator Stennis. Uh, Senator Doles told us that Frank Carlson's advice to him, almost his only real advice, was when you get to Washington, be sure to look up Senator Stennis. And in effect, one had the sense that you almost should attach yourself to John Stennis, and he's a kind of model senator. Why, why, do, you think, why do you think that was? Well, I think uh, John Stennis was so revered, liked by everybody, modest, uh, but I'm surprised that that would have been Senator Carlson's advice to Bob. Of course, Bob came in 68, so that would be fair enough. Richard Russell was still alive, and of course he was the patriarch, but he was then sick and he died seven or eight months after that. But, but you're right, coming in 68, in 69, I think probably the advice to see Stennis was correct because it was clear Richard wasn't going to, Russell wasn't going to last much longer. And and that was notwithstanding his attitude on racial matters. Oh, no. I mean, and that, that no. didn't enter into the respect with which he was no. regarded. No. Uh, for, first, race was never John's big issue. I mean, did he vote with the South? You bet. But yeah. did, as opposed to Eastland, did he make an issue out of it? Mm. No. And he just—he was a man you just—you could not help but respect. And on some on critical issues, on on uh, armed services issues, he was bipartisanly good for seven or eight votes. Apart from what you get from committee and what you get anyway, he could influence seven or eight votes, really? like Dick Luger can on foreign relations. Okay. Uh, and seven or eight on a close vote is a lot of influence. And wh- what are the sources of that influence? One is you know your subject very well. You don't spread yourself thin. Sam Nunn was another one. You don't spread yourself thin. You don't shoot your mouth off on a lot of other subjects that you don't know too much about. You are not a publicity hound, and people will listen to you. And presumably part of that is you're, you're what would in London be called a House of Commons man. I mean, you're someone who has a real identification with and loyalty to the Senate as an institution. Is that uh, a factor? Yeah. I mean, very obviously, in... You know, it's, it's the old show horses and go horses. Uh, I think it's probably not much different, though, in, in uh, the board of directors of the YMCA or the PTA. The one that is forever seeking publicity or who comes out of a meeting and immediately goes to the press uh, is not as powerful on the inside as the publicity on the outside would give you the impression. When you factor in, I mean, we're jumping ahead here, but and I'll go back to Senator Dole, but w- when you factor in all of the elements over the last 30 or 40 years, particularly the, the media and, and the Internet and the 24-7 news cycle and cable and all of this, is it harder for people not to be publicity hounds? I mean, it seems as if there's, there, there are more folks in, in, the, in Congress today who are playing as much to the, to the cameras as they are interested in, in legislating. They are, 
And on occasion, it can work in terms of influence on a limited issue at a limited time. But that's if you're able, by going to the press, to stir up enough public opinion around the nation on your side that the pressure on the other senators yeah. to bend doesn't mean they like what you've done. Doesn't mean you can do this on another issue. You, <laughs> if you're going to go that route, you better get the public with you. Do, do you think the Senate has deteriorated in the... For example, I mean, debate mattered 30 or 40 years ago, oh, yeah. didn't it? One of the great... One of the great debates, Bob was there, but it's not in the congressional record because it was on a sensitive matter. I'll kind of de describe it to you. It's the best debate I've ever seen in my life, politics or out of politics. It's the summer, I think, of 1969. We're voting on whether or not to authorize the ABM, the anti-ballistic missile. Nixon wanted to trade it away in negotiations, but he couldn't trade it away if he wasn't authorized to build it. And also, it became sort of a flashpoint for hawks and doves on the Vietnam War. So finally, we have a closed session of the Senate. No press, nobody there. The only outsider is the guy that's doing this, you know, taking the notes. Ninety-nine senators. And the two, and there's maybe ten that had not announced, and everybody knew it was going to be a closed vote. And the two senators that were doing the proponent and the opponent were both Democrats. The proponent of the ABM was Scoop Jackson of Washington. Opponent was Stuart Symington, both on the Armed Services Committee, both bright, both reasonably good speakers, both access to the identical information. And 99 senators were there for debate, because with 10 hours of debate, equally divided. Oh. And Symington opened first, and he had some charts showing Russian SS missiles of some kind. And he goes for an hour, not many notes, and damn good. And I thought, boy, at the end of that, I said, that's going to be the end of the ABM. You cannot debate that. Then Scoop got up, and he went for an hour. He said, let me take you just a few charts further. And my good friend, I'm sorry, he says, here's the Russian SS-19 or something like that. And he says, and these are the multiple warheads. And he finishes, and I thought, that's it. We're going to have the ABM. Then they asked questions of each other, and it was like watching two great fencers. They knew the answers to the questions, each of them trying to pin the other. And this goes on for almost an hour, so they've now occupied three hours. And then other people got to ask questions, and about the fourth one in was Senator Fulbright. And of course, you, you, in those days, they did address to the chair, uh, Mr. President, well, the senator from Washington, you'll do a question. You didn't turn to the senator and say, it. you addressed to the chair. Or I'm saying, the, Mr. Uh, Mr. President, will the Senator from Washington yield to a question? And Fulbright would have a tendency on occasion to do things like, I don't know if my colleague has had a chance to read the Chinese translation of the Russian copy of the treaty, but if not, let me tell you what it says. You know, Because, you, you know, he was an academic. President a little University. bit of showing off. Oh, yeah, and he was president of the University of Arkansas at one time. And so Scoop says yes. And, and uh, Fulbright goes... Uh, I don't know if my good friend from Washington has had a chance yet to digest the remarks of Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko in Warsaw three weeks ago, in which he indicated that the uh, Soviet Union wanted to reach a new era of detente, a new era of friendship, a new era of cordiality with the United States. And doesn't my friend from Washington think that before we rush pell-mell into this unproven missile system, we should give 
just some little credence to the words of the Soviet foreign minister. I mean, you have to picture this. They're stand, you stand, you know, and they're, they're not ten feet apart. Scoop points at him like this, and he goes, let me call a memory for the senator from Arkansas. And he moves his finger all the way around the semicircle. He says, and to the others who weren't here that day, the morning in October of 1962, when President Kennedy called Foreign Minister Gromyko into his office and asked if the Soviets had any missiles in Cuba. No. Had any Warsaw Pact country missiles been transported on Soviet ships to Cuba? No. Were there any Soviet soldiers on the ground in Cuba assembling missiles from any place? No. And then Scoop gestures like this. Then the president opened the drawer of his desk, and Scoop opened, took some papers out. Then the president opened the drawer of his desk, took out the pictures from the U-2, showing the Russian ships, showing the missiles on the decks. Pictures so clear, you could see the Soviet soldiers on the ground and the chevrons on their sleeve. And he goes, and Andrei Gromyko left that room and acknowledged liar. And then Scoop goes like this. He said, now, if my good friend from Arkansas wants to rest the security of this country and the credibility of Andrei Gromyko, that's his business. But I wouldn't ask anybody to sleep safely tonight based upon the believability of Andrei Gromyko. When the vote eventually came, it passed by one vote. And the answer to that question was what probably brought two or three people over. Oh, now, yeah. you go look at the congressional record on this. First, there's still big blanks in it because of security. Yeah. Secondly, you get to this question, and there's a question by Fulbright and an answer by Scoop, and it's not this question and the answer. And so I talked to Dorothy Fostick, who was Scoop's person on this. And I said, Dorothy, what happened to this question and this answer? And she kind of smiled. She said, well, afterwards... Senator Fulbright's staff came and asked if we minded if the record could be corrected. <laughs> now, you were always in those days entitled to correct your comments. You can't correct somebody else's. <laughs> but Scoop had won. He was generous, so he agreed. So the question and answer is not the question and answer. So unless you were there uh, and heard it, yeah. there's no record of it. And we mentioned Senator Stennis. Very different. Per was Margaret Chase Smith sort of a conscience of the Senate? I mean, did she have that kind of aura, probably because of the mm. McCarthyism and she, yes, her independence. Yes, because, because of her speech about McCarthy, sorry, initially started. And she, and she did have that. She was not a powerful senator, but she did have that aura. And maybe a part of it's the fact you're a woman, uh, the only woman in those days in yeah. the Senate. <clears throat> uh, yeah, she did have that reputation. And she was, she was admired. She was not a powerhouse. Yeah. The... Um, let me go back. So, so you really, you come into the Senate at the same time as same Bob Dole. Bob did, yeah. yeah. Um, how did you make his acquaintance? Oh, I can't remember how, you yeah. know, the, the whole freshman class got to know each other pretty quick, but I can't remember how I made his acquaintance. And, and, and also you were, I mean, obviously from different parts of the country, but in those days there were liberal Republicans. I mean, there was a... Oh, there was lots of them. A, a liberal Republican caucus. Oh, yeah, I was one of them. Uh, but yes, by the time... In those days, even Dick Schweiker was regarded as a liberal. And you had Jack Javits, and, and you had Ed Brooke, and you had Mark Hatfield. You had, a, you had a fair number that were liberal. And the uh, Ev Dirksen was leader uh, until his death. In the yeah. As a matter of fact, that's where Bob and I first worked quite closely together. We worked to elect Howard Baker to that position in 1969. Really? We, we didn't win, 
but Bob and I worked together and we'd be on the phone with each other constantly. Have you talked with Marlo Cook and what did you get? And, and, and you know, we were reporting back and forth to each other. Now, how much of that was generational? It, it was almost totally generational. You know, Howard had only been there two and a half years or something like that, although he was the son-in-law of Everett Dirksen. But, and he was much more conservative than Hugh Scott. But the older Republican conservatives could not abide the thought of somebody with only two and a half years seniority really? becoming leader. And we even use the argument of Lyndon Johnson, who became the whip in just two years and became leader in four years. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't seem to wash. That's fascinating because what you're saying is, at least then, uh, perhaps contrary to what the public might think, ideology doesn't trump oh, generational no. Oh, no. loyalty. Philosophy, by and large, I, you know, I don't know what it's like right now. But philosophy then did not trump blood and friendship. And what kind of leader was Hugh Scott? Um, nice guy. Of course, he's leading in the minority all of the time. Of all the leaders I served one, with, Republican and Democrat, the ones that had the first, the problem of a, of a leader, poor devil. You know, he's got a situation like this. One guy says, "Don't vote till four. I'm coming back from Los Angeles. Don't get in till four. Another guy says, "You got to vote for three. I'm leaving for you know, Seattle, and if you don't have the, you don't get my vote." And, you know, he's, they're just—it's uh, almost impossible for any of them to think of long-term strategy. They're just bedeviled. They're traffic cops. With yes, and the and but the one who I thought had a greater perspective than all the ones I served with was Mike Mansfield. Part of it, he'd been a history teacher. I'm talking with him one time, he says, when he was in the military, he says, I was, yes, I was in China, and I'm thinking World War II, he met in the 20s. Uh, he'd been there. And he, he had a demeanor and a longer view and a patience that no other leader had, and, and nor did Hugh have it. I mean, Hugh was a nice guy. But of all the ones, who was the most natural leader of men, and I'll say men, uh, no question Bob was, was in terms of a natural leader. Who would you follow into battle? Uh, I often said, if I'm ever stuck in a barroom fight and have to fight my way out, I want to fight out back-to-back -back with Bob Dole. And, and what were the qualities that contributed to that? Uh, they're, I, they're indefinable. It, either you've got it or you don't. Bob had it. Uh, Did he always have it? Yes. Or, because there is a sense that he's, in, in many ways, he's evolved, like hopefully all of us do. Um, I mean, that... You know, the, the, the sheriff of the Senate was in many ways a very different figure from the well-regarded chairman of the Finance Committee and, and a decade later, you know, the would-be president. I mean, th there was a sense that... Yes, but even among the freshmen that came in, if you were to say who would have been the natural leader among us, it would have been Bob. Hmm. And who were some of the other members of that class? Marlo Cook was one, Ed Gurney from Florida, uh, I'd have to go back myself, but there's more than the four of us. Yeah. Uh, but I honestly can't remember. But right but now. he was clearly very much a Nixon man. Very oh yes, uh, that was obvious at his funeral, uh, at Nixon's funeral. Yeah. You now, did, did you on, on the Hainsworth and Carswell nominations? Where, where were you? I voted against both of them. You did. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, that that was a that was a, a tough one because comes in the summer as I recall of '69 for Hainsworth. Yeah, 
here on the freshman center. Bob at least had been in the house and he had a little more grays than I did. And he was a little older than I was. I was only 36. And even though I was a freshman, I'd been down to the White House a couple of times to meet with the president, but it was in a group and it was usually kind of a pep rally kind of thing. But I got a call from Bryce Harlow, could I come down and see the president about Hainsworth? And I said, yeah. It's soon to be another group and I get down there. It's funny, I'm met by a young staffer, Lamar Alexander. <laughs> and uh, takes me in. And it's just the president and me. And I can't recall whether Harlow sat over in the corner or not, but if he did, he didn't say a word. And so the president says, thank you for coming, Bob. I want to talk with you about Hainsworth, Judge Hainsworth. You know, the problem is that people on the Supreme Court, they're not following the law. They're voting their own philosophy. And we've got to put, and therefore, we've got to put people on the court who share our philosophy. And I said, Mr. President, I agree with you, but I don't share the philosophy of Judge Ainsworth. And Nixon goes, let me try a different tack. We went for about 45 minutes. And at the end of it, he stands, so I assume I stand if he stands. And we walked to the door and he puts his arm around my shoulder and says, well, Bobby said, I admire the strength of your arguments, but I would hope as a personal favor to me as your president and as the leader of the party that you could see your way clear to vote for Judge Hainsworth. And oh, that's as much pressure as I'm likely to be under. And uh, I voted. I had not announced, and I did not announce until it was quite close. But yeah, there was a lot of pressure on that. Carswell was easy. Uh, Carswell was not qualified. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in <laughs> retrospect, you think Hainsworth maybe got a raw deal? Yeah. Or yeah, a couple of things that were brought up. You know, he owned a house with a racial covenant in Virginia. All the houses had racial covenant. If you bought a house in the 30s or 40s, there was a racial covenant, or you didn't buy a house. Yeah. Um, charges like that are just unfair. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> how, how, how well did you get to know Dole? Well, I very, mean, very well. And, and how? I mean, what were the... I, what I'm getting at, I guess, through the back door here is you get a sense now that there are <clears throat> fewer real friendships in the Senate. And, and I'm, I'm curious to know why you think that is. What, what is different about the body now from then that, that uh, makes that harder? One, believe it or not, it's a lot easier now to get home quicker than it was. When I went, there was no nonstop flights to Portland, for example. You had to fly sometimes, you had to do two stops. Well, you just didn't go, you didn't go out for a day and come back. Now it's easier. Two, you used to have, therefore, lots more on weekends the bipartisan family parties, two or three members from the Republicans and Democrats and their wives get together. And that, that, that hasn't done much anymore. I don't know if they still do it now, but it was common for us to go into uh, Dirksen's office, even when I'm a freshman, for drinks at 5.30 or 6, and there'd be Democrats there and Republicans. I don't, th don't know if they do that anymore or not. Sure they don't. It was a, it was a heavier drinking place in those days. Yeah. Uh, but but even the drinks cause a certain fraternity and conviviality. Did you also spend less time raising money in those days? Yes, although I never spent any time raising money. I, would, I was just so fortunate. Uh, other people raised it for me. Now, I don't know what I would do now. Whether I would have to raise it or I could find others to raise it for me. But I never spent... Next, to, from 1980 onward, I was able to raise a lot of money by direct mail. That doesn't take much time. You have to look at the letter and make sure it doesn't say something terribly embarrassing. But I raised, in my last race, I raised about $8.5 million, and about 4.5 of it was direct mail. 
and that didn't take me an hour a month to do that. Um, most centers couldn't do that though in those days. I had I, I could do it on a couple issues and that I'd taken leads on, but I didn't spend any time raising money. Were you on the finance committee from the beginning of your career? No, I went on uh, in 1973 after I'd been there four years. And of course, in those days, and here's a change, you went on on straight seniority. Yeah. There was no deviation. There was none of this exception and the, the leader gets to appoint somebody. This is why Voinovich can never get on the finance committee because every, every time there's a new Congress, the leader gets to appoint either one or two, I can't remember. And McConnell hates Voinovich. So unless there's enough spots open that after the leader has made his appointment, Voinovich uh, can get on as the senior person wanting it. But again, that in those days, it was straight seniority. You know, th this is fascinating because what you're telling me really flies in the face. First of all, I'm learning things I didn't know, but it flies in the face of this popular notion that one leader after another has espoused about how powerless they are, about how they have no, you know, no tools at their command. It sounds to me like they have maybe more tools they, than, than they went on. You're, you're, they do, and you're seeing one of the frustrations for leaders on both sides is the filibuster. It wasn't used very much. It was mainly a civil rights tool uh, when I was there at the start for the first few years, and you didn't have, I'll take a guess, 10, 12 votes on a filibuster in a year. Or maybe 10, 12 votes of which four or five may have been on one issue. Uh, and now it's just a common parliamentary procedure, which makes it infinitely more difficult for, for a leader. Uh, so that tool has changed. But if you mean, are we aggregating more power, House and Senate, in the hands of the leadership, the answer is yes. Huh. Do you remember there was a vote, a um, critical vote, <coughs> when Nelson Rockefeller was vice president, which, which reduced the cloture from oh, yeah. 67 to 60. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the circumstances surrounding that? Because that was pretty controversial. Yeah, it was very controversial. It had to do with, as I recall, with whether or not at the start of a new Senate, a new year, the old rules bound, or rather a majority could vote to change the rules. And we just about went through that last year on the judges when the Republicans were getting close to, do we have the right to change the rules? Yes, yeah, so I remember it very well. It's very controversial. And his rulings from the chair were frankly directed toward lowering. Oh, yeah. And, yes. and that upset a number of Southern Republicans. Oh, oh, yes. Who didn't forget it. That's correct. You know, he exactly made the rule that basically you could change the rules at the start by, in essence, I think he was saying a majority vote. Uh, whereas it would have, you know, and the, the interesting part, when I went there, the, the rule on filibuster was still two-thirds. Uh, they only changed it to, to 60 votes. Uh, maybe in the first year I was there, and there was a senior senator from from Delaware named John Williams. He, in fact, he was just there two years, the last of his two years. He was opposed to the change. And he used a wonderful expression, and I think in retrospect he was right and we shouldn't have changed. He said, you know, I'm opposed I'm opposed to the, to the change for this reason, he said. This, by and large, Congress is a grassroots body. He said, if the public really wants something, they'll get it. It may take three or four Congresses. Said, That's not a long time in the history of the Republic. But he said, the filibuster prevents us from making mistakes. 
said, I've come to the conclusion that we make more mistakes in haste than we lose opportunities in delay. That's pretty good advice. Yeah. Conservative with a, mm-hmm. a large and a small C. Tell me about the Finance Committee and its centrality uh, in these years in terms of uh, public policy. It, it, it was, of course, everybody thinks their committee is the most important committee. And so when I got on it, I thought so too, even though I was chairman of the Commerce Committee for a while. <coughs> before I was chairman of finance. By the way, was finance regarded as a plum oh, yes. assignment? Oh, yeah. Huh. I mean, there, there was the big four, really big three, finance, appropriations, foreign relations, armed services. At that time, people were poo-pooing armed services. And, oh, Bill Saxby was another of our freshmen, by the way, from Ohio. Oh, sure. <laughs> Who had some unkind things to say about uh, Bob Dole, remember? I'm, sur- but, I'm surprised. But, Is that right? Yeah, well, he he was the one who, who was credited with the line that um, Dole couldn't sell beer on a troop ship. <laughs> or was it ass on a troop ship? Well, <laughs> that's interesting because it's like the garden line with a, it's not worth a, a picture of warm spit. But, but that's that's the line that got printed anyway. Okay. Uh, was was that a, was that just kind of a personal uh, animosity? I, 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 or? Saxby was... You know, he only served one term, didn't run again. Right. And he used his whole first term to go to funerals in India and things like that. He loved it. He'd just travel around the world. And, yeah. And uh, <laughs> he, he, was, he was the one, this is one time when we violated seniority. Carl Munt was the senior member on the Appropriations Committee, and he had a stroke. He was out for about six months. He couldn't perform his duties. So, thank you. He was, a motion was made to take his seniority away. And, I mean, he couldn't perform. He wasn't there. And, and, and even this now is almost, I mean, almost an unheard of thing to do this. But they went ahead. And so Saxby was detailed to go out and tell Mrs. Munt. <laughs> and he went out and told her and he got back. And somebody said, how did she take, how did she say, he's about as welcome as a turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's it's safe to say he was a plain spoken. Oh yeah, he was, he was. And, and as I recall, didn't he, didn't he? Wasn't he? Was he attorney general? He was attorney yes, general yeah. for a brief period. And, and this is where they asked him to do something in Watergate, and he said, "I told him to go piss up a rope," and that was on live television. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, he's very colorful. <laughs> so, but 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 it, but finance was a was a real plum. It was a plum. Uh, and, and, say arms, and the reason I said armed service, for a while it was not a plum. And when we went around in seniority and everybody picked the committees they wanted, there were still two spots on armed services. And Saxby wanted to know if he went on or could he have two votes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, finance and appropriations were the plums. Foreign relations, if that, if that was your interest. Right. But if you meant the other two, uh, yes. And it has become infinitely more powerful. Uh, Gordon Smith, one of the current senators, could have gone on appropriations or finance two years ago, and he chose finance. And the reason is even in those days, it had jurisdiction over taxes and over trade and, and Social Security. But also, just a few years earlier, we had, had added Medicare and Medicaid to its jurisdiction. Now, in 1973, those, had not, those two had not become over-looming issues yet. The mm. costs were vastly underestimated, and we were just into it. But 
as the years went on, it got tougher and tougher and tougher. Nobody would leave. Uh, it got tougher and tougher to get onto it. And and now today, when you when you add Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid to it, let alone taxes and trade. Mm. Now, was Russell Long chairman throughout uh, until until the until whole? the Republicans took over? Yeah. yeah. And and how did Long run the committee? I assume he ran the committee. He ran the funniest guy. Did he ever talk about his dad, by the way? I talked to, to him very briefly once about his dad. And because Richard Russell, before he had died, had said to me, he said, Huey Long was the smartest man he ever met, and that Russell was not half a step behind. And Russell would cover it with sort of a buffooneries, uh, but he was no buffoon. This was an act. Uh, <coughs> Mm -hmm. No, no, here's a, here's a typical guy. He would never, 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 never go on those Sunday morning talk shows. This is, he was an insider. Mm -hmm. He would not go on those shows. But the committee, when I first went on it, the senior Republican was Wally Bennett of Utah, the father of the current Senator Bennett. There was no partisan staff. Mm -hmm. Nor did he, did Senator Bennett want a partisan staff. And so there was, a, it was a very small staff. I don't think there was half a dozen professionals all together for all the subjects they had. And of necessity, therefore, because R Russell insisted that the majority staff, the staff, serve everybody. And if a minority m member wanted something and the staff didn't get it, Russell would, would raise hell. That the, you're, you're not the Democratic staff, you're everybody. When, when, uh, I was working with President Nixon on a bill that he was going to introduce that was mandated health coverage, employer-mandated health coverage. I was carrying the bill for him in the Senate and working on it, and the two of the professionals on the committee were detailed by Russell Long to work with me in the, for an extensive amount of time and period on drafting this bill because for two reasons. One, Russell wanted to make sure that we got served, too. He wanted to make sure it was drafted in a way that the Finance Committee got the bill. He didn't want this thing slipping over to some other committee. <laughs> and you, had, you have to be careful. Uh, if you got a bill that covers a number of things, the parliamentarian will send it to the committee that has the most of, in it. Now, that's it. What is the role of the parliamentarian? Very, in those days, it was Dr. Riddick, and it was very powerful. And you, you did not challenge his rulings. Uh, he was scrupulously nonpartisan. Uh, it, it, it is very powerful. I, I sense as we're going along, though, we're going to start to see more and more challenging of the ruling of the chair. Yeah. You know, the parliamentarian will say, uh, uh, <coughs> whisper, the motion's out of order, and the, the presiding officer goes, chair rules the motion's out of order, and somebody says, I appeal the ruling of the chair. You've got 51 votes, and you can overturn the chair, but you've now set a precedent in this, which the Senate is very wary of precedent. So. <laughs> hey, a quick interjection here. I mentioned about Rockefeller. I'm writing a biography of Nelson Rockefeller. And um, he, Dick Parsons was his guy. I didn't know that. <clears throat> and Dick Parsons, throughout this whole debate, Dick Parsons, Rockefeller, of course, was dyslexic, so he loved charts. So Dick Parsons and the, you know, the arcane rules of the Senate would have, you know, baffled anyone. And, and a new vice president 
Dick Parsons did two things. First of all, he made a chart that Nelson that took Nelson through the entire, you know, and he was so impressed with it. He took the chart to the White House to show the president, <laughs> you know, who actually had a little more experience on Capitol Hill than he did. But then Parsons sat in the gallery and signaled the vice president well, basically how to rule. I didn't know in that the, throughout this debate, and when it was over. Strom Thurmond was, in particular, unhappy about this. And he's in the cloakroom. Mr. Vice President, you know, I want to talk to you. And he was cordially, but, you know, unmistakably expressing his dissatisfaction. <laughs> and Rockefeller said, well, Strom, I tell you what, why don't you talk to my counsel? He's, he's here, right here. Well, in those days, Dick Parsons, you know, great big guy, had a Big afro. Oh no! And no, he's no, did, no. And so Nelson says, "Strom, let me introduce you to my legal <laughs> counsel." <laughs> and Thurman took one look at, and that was basically the, the end of the conversation. Well, Strom, but, Strom's, Strom's the guy. One time in our Tuesday luncheon, the Blip and Sonder horses had been here. They're, they're born black and they turn white. And Strom says, "Wouldn't it be wonderful if people did that?" <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Do you think Thurman, did Thurman ever change in his... In this sense, he was one of the early ones to start having from the blacks on his staff and yep. wooing the backs. And in his last campaigns, he did relatively well for a Republican yeah. with blacks. Yeah, yeah. No, he changed in that sense. Yeah. Were there, I mean, without naming names, were there out-and-out out segregationists? Oh, Eastland the, was. Uh, there's yeah. no question about it. I think, I think probably both Alan Ellender and uh, John McClellan from Arkansas were... Uh, Did you ever wonder? I remember when Eastland, I was in in one of the sessions having drinks in the leader's office, although it may have been Hugh Scott's at this time, the trend kind of, that theory continued. Eastland was there. And Mac Mathias, which is another one of the class of 68, and somebody else introduced a bill that all members of Congress have to live in the district. And Eastland says, never pass. Somebody said, why not? to go to niggers. Just. Yeah. The, um, wh- what do you sense about the Dole-Long uh, relationship? I mean, there's the famous story the Dole tells after the 80 uh, election. But, I mean, up until that point when Republicans were in the minority, I mean, how did they, how did they work together? And how did the well, minority as I re- work? As I recall... Bob did not become ranking member till '79, didn't he? It wasn't Carl Curtis? Uh, mm. Yeah. So, so in that sense, at least Russell didn't have to deal with him as the ranking member until the last two years. Yeah. But Russell got along with everybody. He ran, and of course, in those days, no sunshine law. Everything was run in secret. It still is, as a matter of fact. Even with sunshine laws, you meet in the back room. You don't. You don't have votes that count. You just have votes that count, and then you go out and have a formal vote. But. Uh, Russell, I, I found, got along with everybody. But I, I don't know what the special relationship may have been between the two of them. Also, I don't want to overlook now, 74, you were, you were both up for re-election in 74? Mm-hmm. And, of course, he had a very, very tough fight. Yeah, that was against that Roy, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, against yeah. Bill Roy, and, of course, the, the the pardon comes along in the middle of it. I mean, take it, describe the political atmosphere of that unique year. And what did you face? And so I faced the, the same thing, but 
I faced it, fortunately, in a slightly different situation. Believe it or not, interesting history. In 1966, Mark Hatfield was elected to the Senate, running against a very competent Democrat named Bob Duncan. Duncan had been a two-term Speaker of the House in Oregon, and then a two-term Congressman, and he's running against Hatfield's 1966. Hatfield is a dove. At the National Governors Conference, he's the only governor to vote against supporting Lyndon Johnson on the war, and he was a hero to the anti-Vietnam people. Duncan was a hawk, World War II fighter, and, and rather fight them on the banks of the Mekong than the banks of the Columbia. Wayne Morse crosses party lines and supports Duncan. Or rather, supports Hatfield. I mean, supports Hatfield. Yeah. Right, supports Hatfield, which irritated lots of Democrats would help me when I ran it. So now in 68, I beat Morse. Believe it or not, in 1972, when Hatfield's up for election, Morse runs against him. Uh, Hatfield is not anti-war enough. Uh, and Mark just clobbered him. In 1974, he runs files to run against me. Now, he's now 74, and he's, our poll set us way ahead. And he's, he's, but in midsummer he dies. So the Democrats have to pick a new nominee. And they pick a woman, who a state senator, who had run for governor, but had lost the primary slightly, so it, and she was still in the state senate. And they picked her, and she didn't have a lot of money, and there was only three months to go, and she was totally uh, out of her depth on national issues, and just so much so that when we had a, a debate at the Jewish Community Center and somebody asked a question about Israel, if you picture somebody saying this at the Jewish Community Center, she says, oh, that's not a front burner issue for me. You just don't do things like that. that so my race was a different race in that sense. Uh, yeah. But the same issue was there. The pardon was there, although I had opposed the pardon, so it, it helped a bit. Um, <coughs> when... When do you think of Dole as a national candidate? I mean, well, I, very early on. I mean, of course, he'd, he'd already run for vice president. Uh, well, he, yeah. he would in '76. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but just to me, he was just a natural leader. It, the, the 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 one thing, and you could see, it could hurt him, and then it hurt him terribly when he ran against Clinton because he didn't keep doing it. He had that wonderful tart tongue, and most of us enjoyed it. On occasion, it could cut the wrong way. And so in 96, I guess he was just told to shut up and not, and, and then, then you didn't see the real Bob Dole. Yeah. But, I, you know, this is one of those where you can have nine outrageously funny things and the 10th one, bombs, and the nine are forgotten. The bomb is remembered. Would Democrat wars uh, fit in the, uh, the, the, the category of things you wish you could take back? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Every, every war in this century? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, first... When you're talking about World War One, you know, who knows? Yeah. When you're talking about Korea, everybody knew. But I don't, th I don't think they really blamed it on Harry Truman per se. We did in 1952. Uh, but I just, by by and large, the public is pretty supportive. By that time, we're out of Vietnam. I mean, the public is pretty supportive of America when it's in war. And I don't think they took kindly to that kind of a remark. And that brings up this this large issue that's sort of dogged Dole for, for much of his career. I think he's long since put it behind him. But this notion that there's almost this Nixonian dark side. 
how do you how do you assess that? It's wrong, and I I, I knew Nixon you know slightly. I, he had to deal with me a fair amount, and there was a, a dark side to him. I, I would say Bob's was more a tough side, I did, not dark. Uh, you, you didn't sense Bob was devious, uh, and you, you, you don't you, you have no sense that he would put a knife in your back or abandon you or something. In fact, when I was going through my ethics problems in the Senate, he stuck with me to the very end. And <coughs> so, I did, but he did have a tough side and on occasion an unforgiving side. Really? Yeah. How, how, how would that manifest itself? I remember itself? one time, I don't know what the issue was, but, but Jack Danforth was on the other side <coughs> and uh, we're having a meeting and then Bob said to me, who's coming? I said, Danforth will be here. And he says, do you have any real Republicans coming? <laughs> I, can, <clears throat> I can hear him say that. <laughs> <laughs> See, but, but that's, that's a flash comment. Yeah. And that's the, that's the kind of thing that can hurt if he say, says that publicly. Yeah. Were you, uh, well, were you surprised on the election night in 1980? You're up again, mm-hmm. and um, it's a Republican year. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised uh, that you were going to be in the majority? Absolutely. I could see a chance to get there, but I didn't think it would happen in 1980. 1980 was the reverse of, of last November. We won every close race. Uh, in November last night, we lost every close Which race. also meant that you brought in some fairly weak... Oh, God. I mean, you, you, <laughs> talk, about, you talk about Roger Jepson and, and Admiral Denton and Paula Hawkins. Oh, God. <laughs> the, One-term wonders. <laughs> that's, the same, that's the same year, I think, that, I think that Steve Sims came in. Yes. But, Beat Frank Church. Yeah. But, he, you know, Sims was amazing. Well, and, and Larry Presswell. Didn't he? Yes, he, he, beat, uh, he beat George, uh, George McGovern. No, Jim well, Abner. Oh, that's right. Another weak one. I mean, but Sims, you know, he, he was a funny guy. Idaho only has two congressmen, and the Idaho is really divided north and south. The north is Anaconda, mining, union, tough. The south is Mormon, Boise, gentle, conservative. But anybody who knows those hard rock union mi- miners, these are hardly liberal people. <laughs> they may vote Democrat, but you, you know, are they liberal? The answer is no. <laughs> Sims is a congressman from that district, from this tough district. And in 1980, he's running against Church, and you know, one, of the, one of the issues in Idaho was always guns. And one of Steve's slogans was, America was made great by three boxes, the jury box, the ballot box, in the cartridge box. <laughs> and he says, and if the first two fail, you should use the third. <laughs> Idaho loved it. <laughs> the, um, and Sims won in 86, and I remember what happened. It's another, we're in session until maybe mid-October, 86. We've got all these weak candidates that are there. Steve Sims goes home at Labor Day, and he says to Bob, you need me send a plane. I'm going home to campaign. He got reelected. <laughs> The um, that night, I get. I mean, it dawns on all of you. I mean, beginning with Howard Baker, that you're going to be in the majority. Um, <laughs> we, you were surprised. Oh gosh, yes. I, I just, you know, you could start to see 
some numbers, and you thought, no, we, we could get pretty close to majority. But we, I don't think any of us thought, and all of us professional politicians, that we could win every close race. And we did. And suddenly Bob Dole is chairman of the Finance Committee. Mm-hmm. And I mean, because I was around then, and I, I remember hearing him uh, talk about the difference between being in the minority when all you had to do was put out press releases. And now all of a sudden there's this kind of sobering reality that sets in that you're responsible. And, and I thought Bob made one major mistake in 1981-82 on the original t- tax bills. He excluded the Democrats. And by and large, it was a Republican effort. And was that a deliberate yes. choice? That really? Was, and and that, why do you think that I don't was? know why. And I thought it was a mistake. And I told him at the time I thought it was a mistake because... First, we didn't have that big a margin, uh, and as I recall, the committee made it 11-9. Uh, uh, but I said, you know, Harry Byrd before Russell Long never did it, and we ran on a bipartisan basis, and you, you can get an awful lot out of it. I mean, the Democrats on it were not liberal. Right. When you start going down the line, you had Russell, you had David Boren, uh, Trying to, th- he had Max Baucus, who was not at all that liberal. I mean, you had any number of people you could get on things, but he, he excluded them. And the, the final, not so much on the hearings, but kind of the way the Democrats in the House excluded the Republicans on the Ways and Means Committee for years yeah. and years. <coughs> how did, by the way, how did Dole and Russell? Now that the roles were reversed, how did Dole and Russell Long? Well, he always work together. He, he, he always very wisely treated Russell practically as if Russell was still chairman. Uh, and that was a very smart thing to do. That suggests mm. that the perks didn't matter. I mean, the, the you know, the trappings of of his new power. Oh, yeah. No, in that sense, Bob, uh, Bob cared much more about real power than the trappings of power, which probably makes you all the more powerful. <laughs> Now, he was not a supply sider. No, neither was I at the time. Right. That's correct. And, and well, so I can remember Bob on balanced budget, balanced budget, balanced budget. I mean, was there any, there must have been some sort of, maybe if only a creative tension <laughs> internally between the kind of the orthodox faith and this new religion uh, being yes, brought al- in by. Al- although, you recall, as soon as the recession started, we end up raising taxes again that next Well, next the next year. year. Yeah, the next right. year, yeah, which, which is not something Jack Kemp wanted to do. But the supply-siders were just starting to, to gain control. They just, they, literally, they had been academics during the Democrat reign and during the Carter reign, and they didn't, they didn't have a stronghold. I can remember Kemp coming to me long before he went to Roth and wanting me to co-sponsor his Camp, whoever was going to be with him, Camp Roth had ended up, or as Roth would call it, the Roth Camp Bill. <laughs> but the supply siders hadn't yet gained the, the, the credence, and it may be wrong credence, haven't gained the credence that they did subsequently. That 81 bill, um, first of all, how much, I realize it's speculative, the impact of Reagan, the, the assassination attempt on Reagan, and and the, the the aura that grew out of that, how much did that increase the president's tremendous power? Tremendously, especially the way he handled it. You know, saying to the doctors, "I hope you're all Republicans." 
Yeah. I mean, you could not dislike Ronald Reagan. This is one of his great strengths. And I also, and he's the president I dealt with more than anybody else because I was chairman of the Commerce Committee for the first four years of that administration. And in that area, we deregulated a great many industries. And then I was chairman of finance for two years when we did the tax reform bill in 1986. So I dealt with him more than any other president. And I've come to the con conclusion that he understood the presidency better than anybody else. Right. And he regarded the function of the presidency to, was to inspire the country. Uh, and you hire people to run the government. And so you get, you get some bad eggs on occasion. But he was never the detail man that Jimmy Carter was, or almost any other, or Bill Clinton, who I dealt a little bit with, or anybody else you've ever seen. But you'd go to these meetings in, in the uh, cabinet room, leadership meetings, and I was in the leadership all during that time, <coughs> either as a committee chairman or chairman of the senatorial campaign or the Republican conference or something like that. So you go to these meetings, and I'm sure the, the president saying, why do we have to have these meetings? And his aide is saying, because the members of Congress want to be included, and they want to be able to say that they've advised you, and you've got to, oh, it's just useless. And I'm sure that every president must think that. So the meeting will start out, you go, and you all have your assigned, it's a table about this size, and you all have your assigned place when you go in, there's a name tag. And the president comes in after you're all there, and we all stand up, and he goes around and shakes hands. Now, this meeting is going to last an hour. He goes around, he shakes hands and comments. That takes maybe five or six minutes. And then he sits down, he sits right in the center. It's like you see the pictures of the President Bush. And he actually has the three-by-five cards. And he says, now, the things I'd like to talk about today, and he goes through and just kind of reads them. So that takes him five or six minutes. Let's say it's now it's a bipartisan meeting. So you've got Tip O'Neill and whoever the number two person for the Democrats was at the time over there. And then you have Bob Michael, the Republican leader in the House, and his number two. And then you had the Senate leaders and their numbers. So now you've got eight people. And the president said, now, Tip, you have anything to say? And Tip would say something. And then he turned to Bob Michael. Bob, you have anything to say? Hell, by the time these eight had finished saying something, there's not 15 minutes left in this 45-minute meeting. And, and the president said, any other, any other comments or questions? And there might be one or two. And one time, Jack Kemp asked him a very good question. And, and he goes, Jack, that is a very, very astute question. And I see Jim Baker here, and I'm going to ask Jim to answer that question. <laughs> and by this time, the meeting's over. And we all go out, and you know the press is out there. Uh, how was the meeting? What are you going to say? Waste of time, waste of his time, waste of our time? Oh, it was a very significant meeting. I think he really, you know, and <laughs> I think he understood that's what the function of this meeting was. And, <laughs> and he was he was such a personable guy, you could not dislike him. Was he underestimated? Yes. Including by some on his own side? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Now, he, he was driven by lower rates. I mean, if you had anything of all the things, whether it's the evil empire, what drove him was lower rates. <laughs> at, at, at his zenith in Hollywood, the top rate was 91%. I don't think he had an accountant. I think he must have paid 91% on his whatever his last $100,000 of income was. So all from that time on, he was driven by lower rates. When he came in, the rate was top rate was 70%. We cut it to 50. And then in 1986, we cut it to 28. But in 1986, he may or may not have been a supply sider, but his insistence in the 1986 tax bill is that it had to be revenue neutral. 
So the only way you could get there would be by closing billions of dollars of loopholes. But he never wavered. But it wasn't a question of his telling us how to get there. His goal was lower rates. Now, you figure out how to get there. As long as you get to lower rates, he was saying, I don't care how you get there. What did you sense his relationship was with Dole? I think it was pretty good. Uh, he said, you know, Dole becomes, becomes leader the last uh, four right. years, yeah. But I sense it was pretty good with Reagan. But it was hard to have a bad relation with Reagan. You, know, he, you might have irritated him on things or voted against him, but if you mean uh, mano we mano, it would have been hard to have a bad relation. Of course, there is that school that says it would be hard to have a relationship with Reagan, that, that he was remote, that he was you know, detached, all of those euphemisms. Oh, well, but, yes, but I think this is all, all I don't I think, you know, people I'd love this joke. Well, the trouble is, you go to the grocery store, you got these food stamps, and you get money back, and you buy a fifth of gin, and I mean, he tells stories like that. Yeah. Or he said, as George Murphy said, when he and I were in Hollywood, you know, he'll do things like that. But... I think this is deliberate. I don't. This was not a. This was not a dumb guy. Hmm. Now remember. So in eighty one, apparently, I mean, a bidding war breaks out in terms of tax cuts. Oh God, yes. Oh, how yes. how the, did that evolve? The, well, what? you know, first you got the president. The House makes the president's bill worse or more. The Senate now makes it more than the House, and now we go to conference and damn near make it more than everything put together. Uh, that was that was the bidding war. I mean, we we had one bill. I don't. It's called ten five three. I don't think it passed. I mean, in that form, depreciate buildings over ten years, cars over uh, equipment over five, and cars over three depreciate them to zero. I mean, buildings last more than ten years. But that was one of the. This was the big capital formation was critical. We need to increase our savings rate, and we need to increase our investment rate, and that was the big push. So then, in 82, with Tefra, mm-hmm. is this attempt to take some of the ornaments off the tree. You got it. And apparently the president was not happy. That's correct. How did that... And, and Dole was, is clearly pushing this. Yeah, I mean, well, this Dole didn't... Dole, you're right. He was not a supply-sider. As were... Most of the people that came up in that era were not supply-siders. The academics of that didn't start till the... the Paul Craig Roberts and the others of the late the late seventies really, and and, um, and I don't know what the Dole's relation with the president was at that time, but I I don't sense I don't sense that the president intruded himself that much. He I didn't find I'm trying to remember if I had any calls from him where he and I would be at cross purposes, but I don't find he interfered a lot. With Congress, and, you know, a good example was uh, abortion. Every year on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, he would speak by phone to the Right to Life people, by phone. I don't recall that he ever involved himself in any of those battles. Are we going to cut off Medicaid funding for an abortion? And I, I don't recall he ever said a word, or called anybody, or sent a letter. And he obviously would have done more on taxes, but I don't recall any pressure on me. And I was supporting Bob. How difficult was that? I mean, in '82, I mean, to in effect, you're reversing yourselves to some degree. You're you're all but saying we, we made went a too far. Yeah, we yeah. went too far. But I think we knew we went too far in 1981. Yeah. 
it, you know, Danny Rosenkowski had just become chairman of Ways and Means. Bob has just become chairman of Finance. So you got these two, and both of them pretty powerful guys, and each of them going to prove their man, manhood, uh, if necessary, at the expense of the other. What was that relationship? I don't know. Mine was sensational with Danny when I became chairman. Yeah. But uh, Danny, he, first, he excluded all the Republicans for all practical purposes on ways and means. So you don't need to worry about having to deal with the senior Republican. You're going to have to deal with the chairman. Uh, I mean, this is how powerful Danny was. Is that just because that's how they did it in Chicago? I'm damned if I know. <laughs> I don't know if that's the way Wilbur Mills ran the committee or not mm -hmm. when Wilbur was chairman. But, but you know, interesting little bite. I'm told that Wilbur knew the tax law backwards and forwards. I'm, I don't know, but and that they really didn't have votes in the committee. Wilbur said, "I think we should do this and that," and the committee went along. And up until the Watergate year, when the rule was changed, up until that year, the Ways and Means Committee was also for the Democrats the committee on committees. So Wilbur Mills, not only was chairman of Ways and Means, he decided who got to go on all the other committees. I mean, that is power. Uh, uh, here's an example of, of Danny. From time to time, there's been a provision in the tax code that if the employer provides prepaid legal benefits like health insurance, that they're not taxable as income to the employee, just like health insurance is not taxable. And there was a couple of unions that had some prepaid legal contracts with employers. And this law would normally expire every two or three years. It wasn't a permanent one. And they always wanted to get it ex extended. And I would help them, although it was a union issue. But it wasn't one that divided us with employers. It was just the employers didn't care because it was deductible for them no matter what we did. The issue was, is it taxable to the employee? And I got it extended a time or two. And Finally, the unions came to me, and it would always have to be in a Senate bill. Danny would never put it in a House bill. And I finally said to them, listen, you're union guys. Why can't you get some Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee to support this issue so, so that it doesn't have to come here? Because then I've got to go to a conference, and if I were to keep this, I've got to give something up. And I said, okay, they got Charlie Rangel to agree. So we're in conference, and I... Danny is chairing it, and I go, Mr. Chairman, on this prepaid legal, uh, I, I really, I really think it's fair provision. Employers don't oppose it; these unions want it. Doesn't cost much, and I think the House ought to recede to the Senate and accept our provision. Charlie Rangel raises his hand. He goes, well, Mr. Chairman, I, I think Senator Packwood's correct. I think probably uh, it is a good provision, and I think the House ought to recede. Danny goes, all right. Everybody on this side who wants to recede, raise their hand. Charlie doesn't raise his hand. <laughs> That's how powerful he was. It's not 15 seconds after he said we ought to recede. <laughs> yeah, to change of heart. <laughs> Rostenkowski, it's interesting, said uh, once to me, um, Bill Clinton, at the time of the government shutdown, Clinton was looking you know, for any kind of advantage. And uh, he called up Rostenkowski saying, tell me something about Bob Dole. That'll give me a leg up. And Rostenkowski said a lot of complimentary things about him. But then he said he's the most impatient guy in Washington. He says, um, you know, at some point he'll, he'll, he'll give you what you need just to, to, to get out of the room. Exaggeration? Uh, a bit, but, uh, but true. Bob was impatient. 
and he would be impatient with other senators who weren't prepared to quite go along or wanted a little more time. But this is also the frustration of a leader. He wants to move. And I'm saying, well, I'm, you know, Mr. President, it's 7 o'clock at night, and he's hoping he can get the vote done and finished by 8 o'clock. Well, you know, I'd, 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 Bob, I'd, I'd rather do it tomorrow. God damn it, uh, why can't we do it now? Because I've got some other things I want to, can't you say them now? Oh, no, I'd rather, he, he was impatient in that sense, but leaders are driven to that. I don't, but you're right, uh, and he, he was impatient, and I've seen him been willing to give things in conference. Sometimes they would be things important to me, but not important to him that he'd give away. But he he wasn't going to give away the very important things. Take yes, us, he was impatient. Take us into a conference because you know most people will never mm. see it and have no idea of how it functions and and what the individual dynamics are and and what what would someone like Dole how would he how would he All right. well let's work. say you've got a typical ways and means finance conference on a a bill of mo- modest importance, not unimportant, but not the big tax bill of the year. So let's say you've got 10 or 12 House conferees and 6 or 7 Senate conferees. Well, first, 18 to 20 people in the conference is not going to reach any conclusion. So the staff will clear out all of the chaff where everybody can agree or even ahead of time House staff will say, yeah, listen, we'll recede on 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 if you'll recede on 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. And this, the staffs agree. Okay. And so that's all yeah. cleared away. And then you get down to the, to the really tough stuff, and the question becomes as a kind of a game as to what is really important to them and what will they give to get what is really important. And they're thinking of the same thing, but what's really important to us and what will we give? And it's inter- it is interesting bargaining. And at the end, a lot of it is determined by the two chairmen. And how much, presumably there's uh, obviously party differentials there, but to what extent are there also differences between the Senate and the House? There are differences between the Senate and the House, but you'll also see geographic differences. Uh, on trade, uh, tremendous geographic differences, and that became even more pronounced as we as we went on. Uh, you're from an industrial production state that's losing competitively. You don't like trade anymore. You're from a shipping state that has a lot of it going in, going out, and ships. You're, but that has nothing to do with party. Uh, that would be one. You would normally get a normally get a partisan division on these taxes favor the rich. And usually the Democrats would say that and the Republicans say no and when you balance it out and you look at it. But that would, you know, you could figure the parties line up on something like that. And there's also going on throughout this period, throughout the 80s and into the 90s, this internal shift, some of it generational, some of it cultural, some of it geographic within the Republican Party. And I'm wondering, it's sort of it's personalized in some ways by, say, a Kemp versus a Dole. Um, although, of course, later on they became good friends. And, and I'm not sure they ever became good friends. Well, but, <laughs> but I mean, how, how was that, uh, how, did, how did that manifest itself? And, and, of course, Kemp, in effect, raised the curtain to Gingrich. I mean, you know, where the party went. I mean, right. And Dole, who was, ironically, when he came to the Senate, perceived as a kind of a hard conservative partisan, 
did he change or, or did, did the party change? change or oh, there's, no, there's no question the party changed. I mean, when, when you looked at the fact that, 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 that the, the Brooks and the Hatfields and the Javitses and, and the Saxby was quite liberal, it, it, and Hugh Scott was really a, a liberal. The, the, and this is all before Roe versus Wade. Where abortion is not an issue, guns are not a big issue. Um, taxes are an issue only in the sense that they're always an issue because taxes are always too high. This, this is not supply side; they're just taxes are too high. Hmm. But the party dramatically changed. You know, and again, Bob's big issues were not guns and abortion. Did he go along? Did he vote with me? Yeah, but do you mean did he did he take a lead on those? He's kind of like the president on those. This is this wasn't his thing. Yeah, Plus, when you are in leadership, you are forced to the center unless you're unusual. Newt was unusual. Newt was able to set the agenda and get the people to vote for, for an in But he's the guy that in a meeting would spin off a hundred ideas, and you've got to jettison ninety-five of them. But other people don't send off any ideas. What was the chemistry between Dole and Gingrich? Well, Newt really didn't become a what I'd call a major factor about 1990. Oh. Uh, when I can't remember when Bob Michael finally left and yeah. Newt took over. We were not yet in the majority over there. And I've sat in some leadership meetings when when Dole and Newt would be there and other. I can't remember how many others, and it wouldn't uh, wouldn't have been a conference because they weren't on the same committees, as I recall. Newt would talk ten times as much as Bob. Bob would listen. Bob would comment, but Bob was not a talker, and, huh. and I mean, Newt is just nonstop and brilliant in some portions of it, irrelevant in other portions. You just, uh, but. For any of us that talk like that, we get taken with our own ideas, and we think they're all important. And hmm. I don't know what the personal relationship was between yeah. them. <clears throat> when Dole uh, ran for majority leader, um, you were very active in that. Oh, heaven, yes. I, was, I, I, I supported him all the way along. It's close race, as I recall. It was, yeah, like, what, side by a vote? Yeah, it wasn't Ted Stevens the Ted, other one? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and And... This is sensitive, but I mean, I would think Ted Stevens was was not Mr. Congeniality. He still isn't. Never was, and probably that's what killed him. Uh, uh, no, he's uh, considering how close it was. Had he had he been, as, he is a smart guy, and had he been as tough as he'd been and congenial, he might have beat Bob. Is, is it fair to say that that senators will tell you one thing and and no? <laughs> and as long as they have a, a secret vote, uh, reserve the right to change their minds. Oh, you remember the, the famous Mo Udall comment when he was running, I can't remember who he was running against for uh, number two position. I, th I think there was 200, let's say there was 200, and he had 100 and 109 people pledged to him, and the vote comes and he gets 91, and he says, he says, I want to thank very much the 91 who voted for me and the 18 who said they'd vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> you want to be careful, though. You don't dare. Let's say you got two people running. You don't dare tell both of them that you're going to support them. 
because yeah. they'll have a list and then they'll start comparing their list with other people right. and not, not, they won't compare it with their, the guy they're running it against but let's say let's say I'd be supporting Bob and, and I'd say uh, Bob I got these 16 people and maybe I might be talking to the, the opponent's number two guy and say listen we got these 16 let me see your list and I said let me see your list and there'll be names on both lists <laughs> how do you run for a leadership position I mean, it's a very unique electorate. Oh yeah, it's, a, it's very. You're, you know, you're talking about fifty, fifty-five people usually. Uh, and this, this is peer group. This is why a show horse could never win a race like that. This hmm. is in, this is an insider. You, you try to think to yourself, when is the last time that an outsider, you know, Bob Bird, beat Ted Kennedy? Uh, for the number two spot in the Democratic Party after Kennedy had been elected to the number two spot. But you, you go through the leaders that were there. Of course, Everett Dirksen was a showman. I'll give him, I'll give him credit for that. But Mansfield, Scott were not. Uh, Bob Byrd certainly was not. Uh, Howard Baker wasn't a showman. Uh, Tom Daschle was not a showman. George, George Mitchell was, in my mind, the toughest leader we had to face with because he was so good in debate. Hmm. He, he had, uh, and most people in debate don't realize this, you want to be very careful of granting your opponent's premise. You know, if you say, you know, George had to be sort of like, you know, can we start out this debate by at least agreeing <laughs> that we will not allow babies to be thrown in the gutter and trampled on by horses? You'd better not agree to that premise, because <laughs> you're dead. And he, he was an expert at doing that. He, he had the capacity in lay language to sort of one, two, three, four, and you're not quite sure where you got trapped. But, but it's, it's leaders inside. If you think you have a chance to be leader and you want to run for it, you do. I did a couple of times. I, got, I finally got beat once. What is it you have to offer? Uh, to win, to win over the uh, the undecided, it's it's almost personal. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't say, if I'm elected, uh, I'll guarantee that more of you get on Meet the Press. Uh, you don't make first you can't generate that, but you don't say, if I'm elected, I'll make sure the Republican conference uh, makes the television studio available to all of you on a free basis when you know you haven't got the money to do that. It, it isn't that kind of a race. Yeah. What were Dole's strengths as a majority leader? His strengths are that he was the natural leader of the caucus. That was his strength. His weakness was he did not have a long-term strategy in mind. Huh. Most leaders do not have long-term strategy in mind. They are swept up with the minutiae day-to-day. Only Mansfield's the only one that I recall that could look at things on a little longer basis. And that's doubly interesting in that, as presumably he was interested in running for the presidency, you would think that if only to further that objective, you would develop a kind of a larger scenario. But, but and the kind of strategy I'm talking about is the kind that Newt attempted to lay out. Yeah. You know, here's the contract with America. Here are the goals. Bob never seemed to have that capacity. We, had, we, had, we had short-term strategy about what are we going to do next week when the Democrats are filibustered. That's just a tactic. That is a strategy. Yeah. That's very interesting you say that because it does get to the heart of, in, in a sense, what speculative what kind of president he would have been. Well, when you are a president, 
I think you're in a better position to at least set the goals. You can even set them better when you are not the leader in the Senate. And I was, when I was just two years chairman of the Finance Committee, I was much better able to set the goals of what I wanted to do in the Finance Committee than a leader would have been able to set the goals in the Finance Committee. Because he's got a hundred other things to think about, and all these people dinging on him about, this is the most important thing, Bob, you've got to do. You don't realize how important this agricultural bill is. Well, of all the things Bob would realize, he probably realized how important this agricultural bill is, but he also has got to worry about the trade bill and the tax bill, and he irritates the guy whose only interest is the farm bill. Yeah, that's interesting, because someone who had, to the public, the reputation for being, having a temper, for being, almost having a short fuse, this would seem like the worst job in the world. But it is. And, and being impatient to boot? Well, yeah. uh, it, it is a doggy, thankless job. You can get on Meet the Press a lot if you want. You can make a lot of comments and you can get news coverage. But it is a frustrating job. I'll come back again. I, I think of the Lugers and the Sam Nuns and the Scoop Jacksons, none of whom were leaders in the elected leadership since, hmm. all of whom exert more influence in the areas that they chose to work in than any leader did. Interesting. What was your observation of the uh, Dole-Bush relationship? When, when clearly they're they're both aiming toward eighty-eight. Yeah. I mean that must have <coughs> colored the relationship. And then, of course, at the height of the eighty-eight campaign, there was a, that confrontation that took place on the Senate floor. Were, were you around? I don't or? remember. Refresh my memory. Well, at the height of the you know, before the New Hampshire. This one, this one where Bob says, quit lying about my record. Well, that was the, the night of the New Hampshire primary on TV. All right. And be, but I think actually before that, just a few days before that, there had been stories in the press about uh, that the Bush campaign apparently was flogging about some kind of questions being raised about Elizabeth's trust fund and investments and, and all this kind of thing. And, and he confronted the vice president on the floor um, I mean, you mean to confirm him personally that yeah, the vice president was on the floor? Yeah, on the floor. I, I must have missed that part. But <laughs> inevitably, you're, start, you're starting to see it now on the Democratic side. Inevitably, races lead to this kind of... You start out, yeah. you can almost have a agree, gentleman's agreement. You're not going to have any negative campaigning. It won't hold. Because your opponent will do something, they don't think it's negative, and you go, ah, son of a bitch. My God, if that's the way you're going to drag this. And then they say, he's dragging me through the gutter. And then the opponent says, I didn't drag him through the gutter. I said he voted for that bill. And it, it, it degenerates. I've always wondered whether there was any, maybe this is too easy, but whether there was actually kind of a cultural clash. I mean, Dole coming from his background, totally self-made, having overcome a number of obstacles in his life, looking at George Bush, as a as a kind of privileged, you know, character. Whether there was, because yeah, I think, yeah. w- would you agree that there's a bit of the populist oh, in Dole? There, were, in many of those people from the South and from rural states, there is a lot of populism in them. Uh, all of these Southerners were conservative, were conservative on race, but if you mean if you think people like Huey Long, let alone his son Russell, were conservatives, or Herman Talmy, my God, they would spend money on agriculture and they would spend money. On social programs, uh, they would outdo they would outdo Jack Javits uh, yeah. on those kind of things. Yeah. Bob, 
comes from a bit of that tendency. There was a bit of populism in him. But this was also, almost anybody that comes from a heavy agricultural state will have a bit of populism in them. It's sort, of, it's sort of the William Jennings Bryan background. I, I just often wondered whether everyone knows about the impact of the war. I've often thought that people underestimate the impact of growing up in the Dust Bowl, you know, yeah. and the scars that you it bet. must have left. You bet, because he was 10 years older than I am, so he grew up. I was born at the start, but he grew up in the Depression and the Dust Bowl. And, you know, I just assumed that everybody that had any connection with anything to do in Kansas in the 30s had a hell of a time. Remember that line? I think he, he's credited with it. Uh, outside with the, with the line of well-heeled lobbyists. Uh, what do you outside the? Oh, the, the Gucci, Gucci Belt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, yes. Where he's, I feel sorry for all those lobbyists out there and their Gucci loafers. Wasn't it roughly that it? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Bob didn't have a lot of sympathy in in that sense for a lot of these absolutely egregious loopholes that people wanted to add. He just he was um, he was much more interested in broad base programs than he was. Are we going to? Because so much of what they wanted was very comparatively small. It's an earmarked special interest for whatever it might be. And I think I finally got to Bob. And you were talking about tax reform and the role that you played. What was his, was he supportive? Oh boy, I'll see. He just pretty much left me on my own. Uh, we did have a key meeting in his office midway along. And, where I wanted to make sure, what I wanted to make sure that I wanted him to understand the others were kind of with me, and I wanted them to say it in front of him. But he never faltered. But but here's the difference: the tax reform as we know it, with the lower rates and getting rid of all the loopholes, almost did not come to pass. The House had barely passed a bill in almost Christmas of 1985. It wasn't a bad bill. got the rates down to 35%. And then Congress never does much till mid-February of the following year. I had some desultory hearings, but when I started markup on the bill, it just got worse and worse. I was losing $10, $20 billion a day in new loopholes, and I was getting, I was getting outvoted. So. On a Friday, and I remember this so well, at about 11 o'clock a.m., I just wrapped the gavel and said, we're done. So he says, we're done for the day. He says, we're done with the bill. I'm pulling the bill. And I, this is a Friday. I call my chief of staff and say, let's go to the Irish Times and get drunk. And we didn't get drunk, but we each had two pitchers of beer and big cheeseburgers, and that gives you lots of courage. And we go back about 2.30, and we keep saying, by God, they want tax reform. We'll give them a tax reform. We had the head of the Joint Tax Committee come over and we said, give us a bill that has 25%, 26%, and 27% low rates. Give us some alternatives. He said, if you go 25%, you'll have to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction. And, and I said, well, we've got about 26 and 27. <laughs> and he said, let me see what I can do. So he comes back about Monday or Tuesday, and he's laid it out, and it's pretty tough. It's, uh, what we're going to have to get rid of because the president all along is saying it's got to be revenue neutral. Now, we were only doing five-year estimates in those days. They do 10 years now. To pretend you're going to be revenue neutral 10 years from now or five years from now, when half of your neutrality depends upon how fast the economy is growing, you tell me in 2010, is it going to grow 2%, 3%, 5%? You don't know. I don't know. They don't know. 
So you have two choices. You just accept the best estimates you can give, realizing they'll be wrong, or you just say, well, we won't pay any attention to any estimates. We'll just so it had to be revenue neutral, but I at least had an outline of how we could get there. And I'll, I'll tell you a wonderful story, by the way, with Admiral Rickover. You know who Admiral Rickover was? 19, you know, he's, he's kind of a legend, and they've always tried to retire, and we passed a special bill keeping him on active service, <laughs> which must have irritated the Navy no end. <laughs> 1969, he comes in to my office, no appointment, by himself, comes into the reception room. Hello, ma'am, I'm Admiral Rickover. Uh, any chance that Senator Pack wouldn't be free? And the receptionist talks to my secretary, and I say, oh my gosh, send him in. So he comes in, we chat about 45 minutes, and he leaves. Six months later, same thing. So he comes in again. I said, Admiral, let me ask you something. You're not very popular in the Navy. We have to pass a bill every couple of years to keep you on active duty. He says, oh, he says, you, you understate my unpopularity. He says, uh, and they didn't really want nuclear subs. They were perfectly happy with diesel. How did you ever get them to come to where you are? He says, it's very easy. He says, whenever a committee is established to study a subject you're interested in, get on the committee. He said, that's not hard to do. Volunteer to take the minutes, he says. Make the minutes long and obtuse and totally confusing. But on about page 16, put in a sentence or two about your project. At the next meeting, the chair will say, I move that the minutes be adopted as if read. He said, at those minutes, expand your sentence or two to a paragraph. He said, you will discover that by the eighth meeting, they have adopted your project. And he says, no one, especially in the Navy, will admit they never read the minutes. <laughs> uh, so in doing this tax reform, I'm sort of thinking of this. So, <laughs> we have the outline of this thing on a Tuesday. On Thursday, I called the Finance Committee together. This is the reason I'm, Bob had almost no input on this because it was going so fast. Mm. And sort of laid out the outline of it <coughs> with the head of the Joint Tax Committee sort of explaining some of the details. And I was surprised. I said, this is not a markup. This isn't a hearing, just public. I want you to hear what, what he's saying. And as the meeting broke up, most of them go by, I think it's a pretty good idea. There may be something there. I thought that was interesting. So that's a Thursday. The following Tuesday, I started meeting in my office at 7.30 with staff. At 8.30, with Moynihan, Bradley, and Mitchell on the Democrat side, and with Wallop, Chafee, and Danforth on the Republican side, seven of us. But I'd already met with my staff at 7.30. I had my Admiral Rickover outline. I go over it with them and make sure they're on board. And then when you go to a committee meeting at 10 o'clock to really start considering some things or possibly voting on things, you've already got seven people out of the 20 with you, and they're somewhat informed. And so we start on Tuesday. And a few things passed that are sort of getting rid of some deductions. And, and we have a big chart up there as to what you, what you have to do to get to the goal. And, there's a few lobbyists outside. We meet on Wednesday, and there's more lobbyists outside. By the time we get to Friday, it is packed. This is where the Gucci loafer statement may have come in. They are outside. You can't get out to go to the bathroom without them stopping and stuffing a piece of paper in your pocket with an idea on it, please take care of this. And it's packed, and it's hot, <coughs> and it's May, and I've got a 
terrible primary election against a nut Baptist minister mm -hmm. who's good looking, doesn't have any money, thank God, but he's good looking. And my campaign chairman wants me to get home. The primary's in May, and I'm still back here in early May trying to get this bill out. So on Friday afternoon, I go out and I announce to the lobby, the committee's done for the day. We're not, we're not going to meet this weekend. Cheers. They can go golf or they can go sail. I then went back inside and said to the committee, we're not going to have a formal committee meeting. But if any of you are interested in talking further about this, we'll meet here tomorrow, 9.30. All 20 members show up and not a lobbyist in the hallway. <laughs> and on Saturday and Sunday, we finished the outline of the bill. And it was ready to go until the oil industry people, and Bob was one of them, and Russell Long and Lloyd Benson and David Boren and, and uh, Max Baucus and one or two others had a little amendment for oil, oil and gas. And we had about $100 billion in loopholes that were closing, and their thing cost $750 million. And I thought, they could, they could possibly upset this whole thing if they're not with me. Or maybe I can beat them 12 to 8, but I, so I gave it to them. And on Tuesday night, about 1.30 in the morning, this bill passes 20 to nothing. And the committee had only seen it 12 days earlier in an outline form. And that's why I say, Bob hardly had any input. There, there was, we were just, we were a runaway train. And it, it passed. But he, he could have intervened mm -hmm. if he had wanted oh, to. Oh, yeah. No, he was with me. There's no, yeah. He liked what we were doing because we were getting, all of a sudden, very good press on what we were doing. And finally, on the weekend before the final vote, both the Washington Post and the New York Times editorialized in favor of it. So Bob loves what the Republicans are doing. But, we, but again, we also did it 20 to nothing in committee. So was he supportive? Absolutely. Was he particularly involved in the day-to-day -day details? No, but I say it was going so fast. Yeah. I've, I use this on occasion to say Congress can really move on major things when it's ready and wants to. Let me ask you a couple of things. Um, presumably part of the leadership is a, is a kind of self-restraint and ability to look beyond past mm -hmm. personal rivalries and the like. Um, did that did that apply to Dole? I mean, did, did Dole manage to get along with with everyone? Uh, yeah, it's hard for me to say because he got along with me. Uh, I, I actually adored the guy, and and we got along sensationally. And when I was chairman of the Commerce Committee, and he was chairman of Finance, and there'd be conflicts and schedules, and I'd say, Bob, I can, you know, I can't be at Finance. I've got a Commerce markup, and I've got to be at it. And, would you do me a favor and put off till tomorrow this issue because it's big? He'd do things like that for yeah. me. Yeah. Yes. So, but I got along with him fine. But in terms of as a leader, when he was in the leader's job, um, presumably everyone doesn't get along with everyone. But but that never that didn't impair his uh, his I, effectiveness. Uh, no, I, th I you know I think his comments on Dan were like one of the real Republicans coming. Yeah. Uh, that was a snap comment on right. some hot issue. I don't find that he carried grudges, but more importantly, it was Russell Long's philosophy, you know, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just temporary alliances. And don't irritate the guy that wasn't with you last week, you're going to need him next week. One, again, maybe speculative, there is this, again, there was this kind of pop culture notion that, you know, the Dole had evolved, the Dole had become, and that, that somehow the marriage to Elizabeth was a significant factor, that, you know, she had softened 
Bob and, and all of this. I, that no, that I don't know. Oh, I knew her. I knew her before she was married to Bob, and almost before I think she maybe even knew him. Uh, that I, I couldn't comment on. I have no idea. I think if anything that mellows him, it's the fact that you're a leader, and at the same time you're impatient, you also realize somehow I am the leader, and somehow I've got to move this cat along, and that's going to require some compromises I don't like. Uh, which makes it impossible on occasion for you to have this long-term strategy. It just, you can't. It's not, it's not your fault. It's just you're in a different position. But he's also an interesting conservative who, who didn't see government as necessarily automatically the enemy oh, and no. who, in fact, wanted to make it work. Oh, yeah. Which put him at odds with this emerging generation of almost nihilists. The government who, doesn't work and shouldn't work and shouldn't have. I mean, yeah. I agree, but that was coming along later in both of his and my career. Yeah. That's a generation 20 years younger than we are, They're in his case, 30 years younger than he is. Does that get back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the generational yeah. as much as anything else? Let me stop a minute. just want to check my office to see if sure. a phone call is coming in that yep. I'm hoping to get. What time is it now? Uh, 11.40, and we're almost done. Vice President running, were you were you squeezed? No, by I, I wasn't at all. No, uh, no, I was clearly in Bob's corner. Uh, and that that again, I didn't dislike George Bush, and I got along fine with George Bush. But that blood is thicker than water, and and I liked Bob and knew he's a good leader, and that was no problem for me. Let me ask you a question, kind of a perennial: Why is it that people are so reluctant to elect? members of Congress to the presidency. What, what are the factors that, that militate? I mean, it's been, it's been argued, for example, that first of all, you learn a different kind of persuasive skills um, that, that aren't the same called for in trying to move the country. Secondly, that there's, that there's a lingo, there's a language that you speak. That that sort you of mean inside like my the beltway, well, and, but I mean the the minutia of of the legislative process that you kind of slip into that outside the beltway sounds like a foreign language. Well, I mean, you've also got if you've been in Congress any length of time a long voting record, and anybody that's got a long voting record is going to have eight or ten things at a minimum that an opponent can take a shot at if they have not had to vote on the same things. That's a, that that is one reason. Secondly. Uh, unless you're going to abandon your, your duties, and some of the senators are, you, you've got a job to attend to while you're running for president that a Mitt Romney doesn't have to worry about, that a Giuliani doesn't have to worry about. Uh, even a governor, by and large, has a little more control over his own schedule huh. in terms of running. Do you think there is a fundamental difference, though, between the legislative skill set say, and a, and a gubernatorial oh, yeah. executive? Yeah, and you'll have any number of governors who come to the Senate who are not very happy there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, it's an in, it, first, you know, a governor is the titular head of the state. A senator is not the titular head of anything. And the governor has two functions. One, like a president, he's supposed to inspire a state. Or two, he's got he's to run a government. And it's a different skill than managing an office with 25 employees or 30 employees that you've got. And uh, that's the sum total of your staff. It's just, and you, it really is not a management job in any circumstances. There's a little bit of coalition building, but that isn't management. Mm. How important were staff to Dole? 
Oh, Sheila, sensational. God, she was a good staffer. And what made her good? One, she had Bob's confidence. Two, she's extremely bright. Three, he would listen to her. Uh, Rod DeArmond was another. Uh, yeah, he had good staff, and he would listen to his staff. Um, Sheila could speak for him. It's interesting that, that he was comfortable being, in many ways, surrounded by strong women. I mean, Joanne Coe was certainly oh, yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Now, he and I met and maybe shared uh, almost all of my significant people from about 1974 or 5 on were women, my chiefs of staff and press secretaries and legislative directors. I, I don't know, Bob, what I, what I discovered. There were often women who wanted to prove themselves and they would work harder than men hmm. uh, just to prove that they're as, as good as a man. Interesting. Do you think that's a generational thing? Do you think we've in some ways moved beyond that? Or well, are yes, moving I, beyond it? I or? think we have because... When Bob and I started, when, when, when I graduated from law school and after clerking a year went to a law firm in Portland, no law firm had ever hired a woman. Hmm. I mean, major law yeah. firm. Yeah. Finally, one hired a woman and relegated her duties to probate for widows and uncontested divorces for women. And, that's, and you know, that the opportunities were slender. So if a woman in that era was given an opportunity. She really wanted to perform. You know, now they're lawyers and they're doctors and they're heads of universities and they have options that they didn't have then. You, we talked earlier about the, the, the relative, well, the gradual disappearance of, of the liberal Republican and all that is reflected in this shift, this this tidal shift in terms of the, the, the party's center of gravity. You experienced it yourself in Oregon. Oh, yeah. Um, how did it feel to be part of this shrinking caucus, and and how did Dole deal with with that? What uh, well, it, even it hadn't even shrunk that far. I mean, it, it's almost gone now. You've got no more the two women from Maine and Arlen Specter, and if there's one more, and Lincoln Chafee was one, you hardly have anybody left. But even in my last term, there were at least enough of us that we could be a factor. That. that if, if we were really badly treated and wanted to bad together, we could probably join with the Democrats and kill something or, or, or support them on, a, on a breaking a filibuster. And so it, it, it simply has gotten now where it's, uh, they're almost insignificant. But, uh, but the, part of the difference came, and it's this lack of civility that now exists on both sides. And most of this I blame on Newt because from the time he took over after Bob Michael left, and he would have beaten Bob Michael, I think. Uh, Newt was basically saying, gang, we're not getting any place being nice guys. You know, they're in control, and they get three things, and you get one, and they get three things, and you get one. I said, and we're never going to be in the majority. We've got to hit them. We've got to attack them. We've got to have a program, and we've got to bring them down. And they bring Jim Wright down. And then the Democrats say, well, by God, if that's the way it's played, we're going to bring Newt down. And it became hardball in the House. About a third of those are now senators. About a third of the Senate came from that Republican and Democrat, came from that milieu. And it has hardened the lines, and the civility is infinitely less than it was now. And part of this is they don't have drinks at 5 o'clock, and they don't have parties with each other on Saturdays. You left the Senate when? 95. So... Um 
by by which time Dole was clearly gearing up to run. Oh, yeah. Um couple things. W- were you surprised when he made the decision to leave? Yes, I was. I, I thought uh, at his stage uh, he could have taken as much time off as he wanted and nobody would have objected. I was surprised when he left. You, So you also were there for the government shutdown? Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes. What was that like? Well, I, could, I was one of those. I could see it coming. I, I was opposed to it. I could say, you know, you think you're going to get a shutdown in the government. You're going to have all these news stories about outrageous things that have finally been stopped. I said, and I almost predicted it. What you're going to have is some family that wanted to see the Washington Monument that's been planning for this trip for a year with their two kids. That's almost the story that came out. But you could see it coming. It was so simple. God, did we get killed on that. Why couldn't Gingrich see it? <coughs> I don't know. Was he so wrapped up? In, in in the philosophical yeah, ideal. Fine, I know. To me it was so simple. I mean it's, I guess it's simple because I'm thinking this is the this is if this were to happen, this is the way I would play it from the other side. And it must have driven Dole up the wall. The shutdown. Yeah. Oh I would think so. It was such bad politics. But he had no and, and secondly, you can you can picture what the press is gonna pick on in something like that. It's the poor, the poor fellow with his family. You mentioned your troubles. What was Dole's relationship? I mean, to you oh, during it, during that period. It, I mean, he absolutely stuck with me right to the very end when I finally was thinking of resigning. Initially thinking, but he counseled me against it. I, I finally did resign. Did he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and how? I mean, did he? He came to you and tried to talk you out of it. Well, I I I would talk with. Bob Dove is the parliamentarian, the guy that Bob relied upon then for parliamentary stuff. And I talked with Sheila about it and kind of re- re- what I was thinking about. And uh, I think Sheila said to me one time, the leader wants to talk to you. And I went over and talked to him about it. And he said, yeah, don't, Bob, he says, don't do that yet. He said, there come a time when you may want to. But, but he said, uh, what, what do you need from me? What I, he, there's nothing he wouldn't have done. There wasn't much he could do, but there was nothing he wouldn't have done that was in his power to help me. Even, even if, if necessary, would have uh, helped me raise money for a legal defense fund. Really, <coughs> that's friendship. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Have you had much relationship with him in the years since uh, you, you left the Senate? Him about once a year at some function. Yeah. One last big question, then I want you to go. People don't know how the Senate works. I mean, people don't know how Congress works. <laughs> And I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of, behind closed doors, um, is it a kind of sixth sense that a successful leader has in knowing just when to, to, to push something, to bring people together, to detect the makings of a deal? What, what are the qualities? I mean, we've all read about Lyndon Johnson and his legendary you know, mastery of the Senate, which suggests it's a psychological gift as much as anything else. Um, what what was it in Dole's case that that, it, that made him? You're, you're born with it. It, it. I mean, first you, you've got you have to be <coughs> you have to be sufficiently immersed in the business that you understand when there's an opportunity for something like this. And an amateur couldn't do it until they've been at it uh, for a while. But once you're in it, you can intuitively. I'll give you an example. Twice I was chairman of the senatorial campaign committee, and I would. 
go around the country and I'd meet with people who were thinking of running for the Senate. And I'd say, let me, let me see your structure and talk with a couple of your people. And they'd all have the pyramid and here's the chairman and here's the press secretary and it's all laid out. And I could tell in 15 or 20 minutes whether they understood what they were doing or not. Didn't, because I'd been at it so long. Anybody in politics understands the inside on the things they're working on. But it's an intuitive sense of when is the iron hot? And you can't teach it. And Bob, by and large, had it. That's the thing he lacked, but it's not his fault, is long-term strategy because the, the job doesn't lend itself to that. Because almost everybody that is badgering him is thinking about today and the vote tomorrow and my issue. And is there also another element, I mean, just in terms of knowing, maybe through long exposure and or intuition, um, what it will take to persuade that particular senator in that particular circumstance? Is it a knowledge, a kind of really intimate knowledge of your colleagues, or is that a lesser factor? I mean, Johnson clearly had... It is a factor, but what you might know in terms of trying to put together a coalition is, I think I can get Jim Abner if I was willing to give in this thing on the farm bill. It's unrelated to what you're trying to put together now. But you know that that's very important to Jim Abner. And, and it's a little thing, but it's important to him. And he'll give you this big thing in exchange for it. Yes, uh, maybe Lyndon Johnson may have been the best in the world in understanding that. But after a while, you know that certain people are interested in, in certain things. Their record shows it. Their speeches show it. If you've got good staff, your staff knows it. How do you think Bob Dole should be remembered? Honest, decent, patriotic. Believe very much in America. Lyndon Johnson was famously called a master of the Senate. Was Dole a master of the Senate? Not in that sense. I read Cairo's books. An, an example of what Lyndon Johnson could put together in, in his passage of the 1957 Civil Rights Act. He had to get. A, he had to do some compromising, and the liberals, led by Wayne Morris and Dick Newberger and some others in the North, did not want the compromise he had. But they did very desperately wanted a bill passed to build a very high federal dam in a place called Hell's Canyon on the Snake River between Oregon and Idaho. The Southerners hated this concept of this dam, but somehow Lyndon talked the senators into voting for the dam in exchange for these liberals agreeing to a tempered-down civil rights bill, Lyndon knowing full well that the House would reject the dam when it got there. I mean, that, yes. I, I don't... And Cairo's book is full of that. Uh, I never saw any leader that had that kind of a capacity. That he just, he just knew where the opportunity was. Uh, that, that's, and he was operating in my mind, in a much more difficult circumstance than leaders now, he was operating when committee chairmen were inviolate, hmm. when you just didn't cross committee chairmen, so you had to be extraordinarily devious and farsighted and clever 
Well, because you didn't have the powers that are now devolving upon the leadership. So that was it's a, it's a unique it's a unique to Lyndon Johnson's personality temperament. Yeah, I mean, his, could it happen again? I mean, if you if it, is, can, it, it, it can always happen again, especially as you're giving the leader more powers. I say, early on, when Johnson becomes leader, and the Democrats have got, increased their numbers tremendously in '58, as I recall, and he's trying to give the freshmen each freshman a significant part on a significant committee. And the Senate's following strict seniority, so he's got to talk to every senior senator and say, what about if you were to switch to this committee? He's got to keep all these pieces moving yeah. because he doesn't have any authority, to, like the leader does today, to put two people on the Finance Committee. So he's got to persuade, cajole, beg, berate, threaten to get all this done. Amazing. Yeah, you, you've read Cairo's books? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, uh, the first two I find interesting, just getting up there, but his, the, the one on the Senate is incredible. I'm looking forward to the one on the presidency, but the one on the Senate was amazing. I mean, even at, at the very end, when he's vice president, so he's now in theory president of the Senate, and he attempts to get the senators to vote for him still as the leader while he's vice president. And powerful as he was, the senators saying, Lyndon, you're not here anymore. This is our club. And, is it less of a club now? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I say, part of it's just jet travel, and you can get places, and you're not there all the time. A part of it, and it, you know, in those days, you had three networks. That was it. Uh, part of it is the tremendous press everybody can get, everybody tries to get, and you've got to work at getting press. And the insiders who work hard hate the show horses who don't work hard. <laughs> another another division, line of demarcation. You look, every now and then, either the Hill or Roll Call puts out who've been on the Sunday morning talk shows. It isn't, it isn't very often that it's a real insider that is a factor. You know, it has to irritate the House members know when that obscure senators can get on when powerful House members, who really are a factor, cannot get on. <laughs> <laughs> How much of a rivalry is there between the houses? Oh, there's, there's great rivalry because, and the House often can outwit the Senate in this sense. They're more specialized. You know, the Senators are trying to cover as many committees as the House is covering. They serve on at least two committees, sometimes three, and a oh. select committee of one kind. You cannot do that as well as a House member who has the Ways and Means Committee, one principal committee. Yeah. If you're a genius and work hard at it, you can stay even with them. But they, they can so often just are more knowledgeable, of, just of necessity. They're not any smarter, just they're more knowledgeable in that area. Yes. Is liberal republicanism dead, or could it revive? Oh, no, it's bound to revive, because if we keep going the way we're going and end up losing 55% of the women and 70% of the Hispanics and 90% of the blacks, and... and 52% of those under 30, we can't, we can't last very long. Yeah. It, uh, the nice thing about democracy, unless a party shoots itself in the foot like the Whigs and just disappears, <laughs> is that finally a party gets tired of getting beaten and they change. The, the, the classic example in this in English politics is Disraeli and the English reform, the second reform act, where the liberals have got a bill, 
but Disraeli and the Conservatives not only have a bill, they leapfrog them in terms of the Irish nationalists and go for a, a reform bill that the liberals cannot buy. <laughs> and they win, and, and the description of Robert Blake's, he gets the Conservatives to vote for things they would never vote for because of the thrill of beating the liberals. <laughs> that, but that presupposes that the, uh, the Republican Party, certainly the conservative Republican Party, has to uh, be a, uh, have a pretty severe drubbing administered. Well, they had won this last election. Uh, uh, I mean, when, when, when we can lose Montana and Virginia, and our, you know, I realize that each of our candidates have wards, yeah, and maybe we'll get them back, therefore. But I don't, I don't see the future looking great for us for the next election. I forget the presidency. I mean, who knows? We might win that. But I look at the numbers in the House, I look at who's up in the Senate, and it doesn't look optimistic to me. Yeah. You think, uh, what, we could turn this off, do you think Senator Warner is going to retire? 